Welcome to the Builders Podcast, a production of the Lawrenson Center for Faith and Work at Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota. This podcast features the stories of builders, people who get their hands dirty making organizations, movements, and businesses. Today's conversation is with Dr. Ken Foster. Ken is a professor of political science and the chair of the political science department and also director of community engagement. Uh, One of the reasons why I wanted to talk with Ken right now at this particular moment is is specifically because of his role in community engagement and in the development of of a policy document that that is called the Climate Action Plan. Ken is one of those rare uh, academics who is not only kind of a master of his own discipline within political science and uh, the study of of uh, a policy and environmentalism and Chinese politics in particular, but he's also a masterful practitioner of of, of policy making and of, of leadership here at the institution. And I have, uh, as I've um, gotten to know Ken over the, uh, the my short time here, and as I've watched him lead the climate action plan process, I have was just deeply impressed with his ability to build not just the process, but also to build a consensus and uh, to build an argument and a case for why this is important. And the Climate Action Plan is uh, live now. It can be found on the Concordia website. And I'll just name three things, uh, three uh, three commitments that it names that I think are really important and that will kind of frame the conversation. Uh, the uh, first commitment is uh, reducing carbon emissions in order to become 100% carbon neutral by 2050. The second is uh, working with partners to improve community resilience in the face of climate change impacts. Uh, And the third is ensuring that all students acquire knowledge and skills needed to act on climate issues. Now, there's a particular word in here that I want to lift up, and it's the word resilience. It's it's a a very uh, deliberately chosen word and one that uh, shows up quite a bit in the document itself. And it's a it's a robust term. It's one that includes um, uh, that includes a lot of different factors that uh, that that um, uh, that shape how a community might respond to uh, things like climate change. And so, uh, this is a this is a, a very interesting document. The um, uh, the kind of process that Ken used to uh, lead uh, lead the uh, lead his group through the composition of the document and the building of consensus and the making of the case is really fascinating. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to have him on for a conversation on the Builders podcast in in particular because. Um, the, the building of policy is really important work, and uh, it's important, especially at long-standing institutions like ours that that have deep memories and histories. and And policy is one of the important ways in which institutions get shifted uh, in particular directions and toward a particular priority. So, I think you all are going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, thanks for joining us. Do make sure to subscribe and to share this podcast with somebody you might be uh, somebody who might be interested in it. I would also encourage you to sign up for the Lawrenson Center's podcast uh, newsletter. I'm sorry. Sign up for the, both the podcast. And then once you do that, go to the website, lawrencecenter.com and sign up for the newsletter. Um, the newsletter is going to contain information about future events. It will contain information about resources that we think are really interesting for our uh, audience. And it's also going to contain um, uh, publication notifications for when we have new podcasts out. So thanks, everyone. And enjoy now the conversation with Dr. Ken Foster.
Professor Ken Foster, welcome to the conversation. Glad to be here, Michael. Me too. Um, glad to be with you. And we're going to talk today about the Climate Action Plan. And the reason that's important for this podcast, this podcast is called Builders. And so we try to, you know, feature stories of people who have been building things, you know, institutions or organizations, sometimes businesses. And we just try to dig into that process of building, hopefully gain insights from it, and then uh, just get a sense for you of why you think it's important to do. Because the, the work that, that the, the Climate Action Plan, the work of the Climate Action Plan is actually very, very important, I think. And I think you feel that pretty deeply too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Talk a bit about your history with the Climate Action Plan and why you initially took on that work. Yeah, so I've been doing uh, chairing the President's Sustainability Council here at Concordia for over 10 years. And so early on, there was a lot of focus on work that we could do at Concordia just locally to try to raise the visibility of sustainability initiatives. Um, and then students, you know, at various times would campaign and would ask the president, you know, you need to sign something to say you're going to take action on climate change. And so around uh, 2016, 2017, um, President Kraft, uh, after conversations, um, had said that he was ready to make a commitment for the college um, to take action on climate change. And so there's a uh, inter there's a national, really international commitment that colleges and universities can sign. So his uh, decision to say that this may be the right time to do that opened the door for us to start moving on it. Yeah, and uh, talk about those early days of the process of just kind of set, as, as you thought through how to do this in a way that would be kind of maximally impactful. What was kind of going through your mind? What were you trying to do in designing it the way that you did? Yeah, well, one of the things initially was that we didn't want, you know, there to be just a climate action plan decision that was made, and then no one on campus really knew about it, yeah. and then it being put together without people really knowing about it. Because at different universities and colleges, it'll be done in different ways. So one of the things, you know, we had a long time to think about it. So one of the things when... President Kraft and I, you know, and the President's Sustainability Council decided, okay, we're going to move forward with this. President Kraft actually made a very smart decision to say, I'm going to sign it, but not for another four months, because <laughs> I'd like you to take these four months to reach out across campus to different units, to students, um, to faculty, to staff, um, to let them know what this climate commitment, the thing we signed is called the Integrative Climate Commitment to let people know what this was all about and to get their input on it. Um, and so that, I think, was very effective in giving us further information about what people were looking for, how they understood this, but also to, you know, when it was actually signed then in a public ceremony, most everyone on campus knew that it was going to happen mm -hmm. and were excited about it. Yeah. So, can you and I come from a different generation than our students do. Um, and it feels to me like our, our students approach this topic of climate maybe even differently than, than, than you and I have in our past or than we were taught to do so. Like when I was younger and in high school, the key terms were like environmentalism. Or in that time, it was the ozone layer, right? We were yeah, concerned about, right. about the, the CFCs and the ozone layer and all of that. And, and just the conversation has changed. What did you learn from, what have you learned from our young people about how to engage this topic around climate? Yeah, with climate, I think the, the big thing that stood out to me is the importance of justice. Yeah. And so the climate justice frame has much more important than, again, in the, in the old days, right, it was environmentalism. And climate change came on the agenda, and it was put in this environmentalism box. 
And so I guess in answer to your question, two things. One is that students think about it in terms of justice often. But then the other thing is that they see it as being an issue that transcends kind of the narrow, you know, environmental or conservation goals, which is true. I mean, one of the tragedies that happened was that climate change got put into the environmental issue box. Yeah. When it's not, it's a civilizational issue and it affects everything. And so students tend to naturally see that. And that's been, that's, I think, why, you know, acting on climate and making climate change an issue for the college is a good thing because it draws more people in because people know that it's not just about saving a bird or a whale or something. It's about our civilization, how we relate to nature, to non-human species, um, and it's about justice fundamentally. You know, one of the really important terms in the CAP, the Climate Action Plan, is the word resiliency. Mm -hmm. And I think that term captures some of what you're saying right now about a more kind of robust, holistic vision of of climate. Um, Talk about that term and why it's important for the... For the document. Yeah, that was when we signed the climate commitment. It, uh, the introduction of resiliency was a new thing for, and it, it re- reflects a change in the national conversation and research around this. It used to be we think about acting on climate change is to reduce carbon emissions, greenhouse mm-hmm. gas emissions, and then also you need to adapt. And so there was the mitigation of emissions, yeah. and there was adaptation to the changes that are coming, even if we are fairly successful. Out of that grew a more holistic approach, which is the concept of resilience. Um, and resilience is about making the community, making the organization or the community better able to um, adapt, but also move forward with strength through the changes that are coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, people, when people think about resilience, often it's about bouncing back from problems. Right. But really, the way we need to see it is that. Being resilient means you uh, you get the qualities that you need, whether it's an individual or an organization or a system. You get the qualities you need so that when challenges come, when uncertainties come, when shocks come, you're able to absorb those and to move forward, to adapt, but also to have be resourceful, to bring the strengths of all people to bear as you move forward to address that challenge. So for the Climate Action Plan, the concept that we use is community resilience. It's not about individual resilience. It's about working as a community to make sure that we have the qualities that will enable us to be resilient in the future. I think part of really good kind of policymaking and maybe just sort of advocacy in general is crafting the narrative in such a way that the maximum number of people can see themselves in it or at least see their Mm -hmm. perceived self-interest in it. And that's where I think the resiliency piece is really important because it's one thing to talk about climate change in terms of just carbon emissions. That's, I think, in some ways immediately polarizing where it creates a sort of defensiveness, I think, for some people. Um, But to talk about resiliency, that's... There are many more on-ramps, yeah, <laughs> to my right. mind, in that narrative than there are in just, let's do carbon reduction. Yeah, that's right. And so that's where, you know, President Kraft and I, as we were, you know, with advice from the Sustainability Council, we were thinking about how do we move forward with this resilience part. And we both agreed, let's try to go big with it. Let's mm-hmm. not just do something in the college. And so that's where we made the decision to reach out to partners in this mm-hmm. community of Moorhead and to create a resilience task force. 
And so there we saw very clearly that, yes, there's many on-ramps for people. We had initially five working groups with different areas. So someone who's interested in storm drain issues and flooding, they can see themselves. Someone who's interested in anti-racist movements, they can see themselves because we need to have an equitable community. Those who are really interested in, you know, pollinators and the importance to safeguard our ecosystem, they can see themselves there too. So that is one of the beautiful things about the resilience frame. Um, And of course, all those things we do to make our community more healthy generally also helps us to move to a place where we can reduce carbon emissions more too. Yeah. Yeah, I think when a lot of people imagine institutional policy, like this is really a document about institutional policy, Mm -hmm. I think it's easy to see a disconnect between kind of policy and action on the ground and say, oh, this is just, we're drafting other document, you know, what does this really mean? What would you say to the person who's sort of policy skeptical? Like, why is that important work? Like, why do we need people who are being deliberate about shaping policy like this? Well, as a political scientist, (laughs) you you think about this professionally. Nothing actually (laughs) happens without policy, so that's the thing that people don't realize. I mean, you know, I teach a co-teach a social activism class, and everyone thinks just going and protesting will make change happen, but no, it opens the door for policy change. So, you know, the climate action plan, but the trouble is, and what you're referring to partly is that it's very easy for an organization to make a plan. And then it's not really actionable or it doesn't really do anything or it's a big document that sits on the shelf. And one of the things that's been useful for me is working with community partners in Moorhead where they have a lot of experience with that. And some of them are very much more action oriented, you know. And so what we've tried to do with this, you know, needs to be called the climate action plan. But we've tried to make it so it's more of, you know, what I sometimes call a playbook. You know, it gives us the items where we can start moving on. And it's designed to be a living document so that, yes, it's, um, you know, we're going to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050 or something. But the real important thing is the next three years. And so I think the, the key thing about the plan is that it's really a set of strategies and actions that we can move on in the next three years. And then we reevaluate and look at the broader document and see what's the next three years. And I think that's where, you know, really comes down to we need to be taking actions and we need to most fundamentally get students involved um, in thinking about that. And one thing to that point is that our first focus here in the Climate Action Plan implementation will be on behavior change um, across campus. And that, by its nature, you know, fo- needs people to get involved. So it's mm. about asking faculty and students and staff, in your area, where do you see opportunities to reduce carbon emissions in some way? Um, where do you see opportunities to build community in a way that will make our organization more resilient. Um, So our first phase of implementation won't reduce greenhouse gas emissions by a large amount, Mm -hmm. but it will help to get everyone on board thinking about, we live here on planet Earth. Mm -hmm. We live in ways that are ingrained in us from the systems we live in. How do we start to go about thinking how we change that, Mm -hmm. both in our behavior and then policy change, too? I think one of the things I really appreciate about just the long arc of your career, at least as I am getting to know it, is that you are, a, a, as a political scientist, a student of policy, right? And particularly, I think, Chinese policy, if I remember rightly. Um, but you now you're an, an actor and a designer of policy. Talk to me about that pivot. Like, was that always sort of a part of, of how you conceived of your vocation? Or did this grow somehow from a different kind of place and later on? 
Oh, I guess it probably comes from just kind of my temperament or strengths or who I am. Like, and I think the, uh, you know, one of the reasons I came to Concordia was to be able to be involved in more than just be a researcher on Chinese politics. And so I really do like the program building, the institutional change efforts. And in my studies in political science, a lot of it did focus on institutional change, how that happens, yeah. on policy cycles, you know, the process of policy implementation. And I always found that very interesting, more interesting than kind of the, the big theories about how things happen. Because I guess in the end, you know, I'd like to see things get done and, right. you know, <laughs> see things improve and see us address questions. Yeah. Um, let me ask about institutional change and how you kind of think about that. Um, are there kind of, I don't know, lessons you might boil down that you've learned both from your research and then also your just action at a place like this about how you go about changing an institution, especially one that's, you know, Concordia is is a, is a uh, is not a huge institution, right? But it has a lot of layers to it. And it, in terms of its power structures, it's multipolar uh, by, by nature. It's an undergraduate institution. How do you think about enacting change within a system that's as complicated as that? Yeah, well, that's certainly something I didn't prepare for. That's yeah, a huge I, I, that's million totally, dollar that question. A, so, a yeah. <laughs> but it's a great question. I mean, it's something that, and I guess, um, you know, I think it really comes down to doing a real inventory of, you know, the organizational culture and features mm. of it and of the systems. <clears throat> and I don't mean a lengthy two-year study where you pay a million dollars to some <laughs> consultant. But I think, you know, at a place like Concordia, people know, you know, what are the aspects of the culture that are in existence and how do the systems work. And then not being afraid to do some changes um, and to be... Uh, you know, forthright about what are aspects of the way we generally do things or behave or speak that holds us back from new things. Um, you know, one of the, I mean, a more broader, broader answer mm -hmm. is, you know, introducing, because policy change or change in institutions is difficult. And, you know, one key thing is that you can't just set out to change an institution and have that unfold as a linear process. So I guess mm -hmm. one of the broader things would be drawn from my study of China, you know, and speaking Chinese and all that, that, you know, things are not linear. Yeah. Um, and so introducing a new element to a system or a new dynamic and seeing how that unfolds and seeing kind of the, some, there's circularity that occurs, there's mm -hmm. a spiraling that occurs, um, and being comfortable with that ambiguity and that uncertainty as you do that. And that, I think, is one of the things that holds back organizations from change is people want to know what's the outcome going to be. Before the process is Before enacted. they even do yeah. it. Or they set out to achieve something specific. And then when it becomes difficult to achieve it, you do something that makes it seem like you achieve it instead of actually achieving or you pull mm -hmm. back from it. Whereas it, the culture needs to be a more dynamic focus. I mean, it's about resiliency, too. I mean, it's about you can't know how everything's going to unfold. We need to introduce some sort of sparks or changes that are going to change the dynamic um, and set some new process in motion. Yeah, you can. So yeah, for, sorry, say, for, yeah. for a place like Concordia or institutions and organizations, there's a lot of hierarchy involved. Mm -hmm. And so doing things that maybe decrease the level of hierarchical control is a way to introduce a new element that people are scared of because what if someone does something illegal or what if something, sure. you know, and, but that, that's kind of an example that hierarchy is a core value and thing at Concordia. Um, it's not the only one and there's things that push against that as well. 
Um, but challenging that in some meaningful ways would be one way to kind of see what you might be able to do to change the institution. Yeah, I mean, part of what I hear you saying is that there, we need to be maybe a little bit more open to experimentation within complex systems, in part because you just can't always map out on the whiteboard how one action is going to impact you know, a really complex ecosystem like this one. So there right. has to be this kind of open to that di- openness mm-hmm. to that dynamism. Yeah. But that really cuts hard against the academic, the way in which yeah. academics are trained, right? Like we want to, we want to work these theories out, and we want to uh, sort of have predetermined outcomes before we uh, uh, maybe enact them. But what you're saying, I hear, is sometimes we have to let go a little bit of that. Yeah. No, that's a great point, the experimentation. And again, probably some of it comes from my study of China, that the Chinese Communist Party, you know, whether it's done bad things, it's done good things, but it is probably the most, you know, amazing political party we've ever seen. It's come through so many disasters, some of its, most of its own making, to continue to be extremely strong, to be liked by vast majority of its people. And it does this through experimentation. The, the secret of the Chinese Communist Party is that it has as a core value experimentation. Huh. Try things out. And so in the end, it always gets presented that the leadership decided on this new policy and we're rolling it out. But what actually happened was there's little experiments that occurred across the country and they kind of gained all this intelligence and see what works, what doesn't. And then they kind of roll it out. And then on the ground, people manipulate it and do what they want, you know. And so it's a very more of a more comfort with, uh, I mean, ironically, more comfort with a little bit of chaos going on um, as long as they retain overall control. So I think that's definitely true, that experimentation um, is something that, um, you know, is really helpful. Well, just as kind of a final question, I want to know, Ken, why is the why is the climate action plan and just that whole push toward more, uh, more resilient, sustainable future, why is that important to you? Well, I guess in the end, you know, it comes down to, for me, you know, to be honest, that I've always... Uh, had a love for those non-human species, mm-hmm. you know, both sentient and otherwise, that share the planet with us. And, you know, that's where my initial kind of environmentalism came from. Mm-hmm. And it was the old-style environmentalism, right, the white middle-upper-class style. <laughs> um, and over the years, you know, learning a lot, going to China changed a lot of what I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the climate, I mean, I think there's there's two things. One is I see climate change as one of those you know, big challenges that gives us an opportunity to live life better than we have been living it as a species. And a second thing, I guess there's three, second would be it's a it's a big problem. It's like a whole set of complex, interesting problems, and I'm attracted to that. And third, you know, if we don't address climate change properly, then those non-human species that we share the planet with are going to suffer the most, you know. And I think that that's where um, kind of keeps me going too. And and that's the other thing about climate change is that people can find many reasons yeah. to care about reducing carbon emissions and climate change. Some very anthropocentric, which is great. Some very biocentric, which is great too. And so, um, yeah. yeah, I think if if the the political dynamic would soften somehow, you know, there's no reason for a conservative to be opposed to climate action because, you know, it's about conserving a lot of what we have, Um, then, you know, I think we could do a lot of creative things to address it in ways that benefit all kinds of people and 
other non-human species. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's absolutely right. Is there anything else that we may have overlooked that you really want to, a point that you might want to make or uh, no, question I don't think that so. I didn't you, ask? You, you got to give me, you got me to, you enabled me to say what I, that last point question was a good one. So good. Yeah. Well, Dr. Ken Foster, thanks so much for your time. Good. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Lawrenson Center for Faith and Work at Concordia College. To learn more about the Lawrenson Center, visit our website at lawrencecenter.com. Thank you for listening.